Welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm Joel and I'm here with journalist and writer Gary Linnell to talk about his book Moonlight. Thanks so much for joining us, Gary. Great to be here, Joel. Now, this is such a fun book to read. I, I really enjoyed Buckley's Chance, um, it, which was about uh, William Buckley, the man behind the expression. Uh, what drew you to this story, uh, Andrew George Scott? Yeah, I've, I've kind of been a bit of a Bushranger fan all my life, basically. When I was a young kid, I devoured a lot of those Bushranger uh, anthologies that were going around, particularly when I was in, just before I was starting high school. And uh, like everyone, I guess I was fascinated by Ned Kelly and this whole notion of the outlaws and how they never seem to be able to get caught. And it sort of stayed with me, I guess, over the years. And I came across the story of Captain Moonlight correctly, 15, 20 years ago in an old book. And I thought, why have I ever heard about this bloke before? And it's just a stunning story um, full of, and what really drew me to the story was not just Captain Moonlight, Andrew George Scott, but it's also this cast of characters from this time who are quite extraordinary. So uh, a couple of years ago, I uh, pitched the idea to Penguin Random House. They were really interested in doing the, uh, the book. And I started the research and I started falling in love with all of the characters around Captain Moonlight. There's one character who was the hangman for New South Wales in the late 19th century. His name was Robert Rice Howard. And he he drove a horse and cart around Sydney in the 1860s and early 1870s. He was essentially a cab driver. But one day a horse reared out from nowhere with its right foot and hit him in the nose. He lost his nose ended up with just a hole in his face where his nose had been. So naturally he was called Nosy Bob. He couldn't pick up a job after that. So he took on the role of state executioner. And he was the man who Andrew George Scott, or Captain Moonlight as we now call him, ends up meeting on the gallows on the morning of the 20th of January, 1880. And I thought to myself, what a great character this guy is. And I couldn't believe that no one had ever actually written a book about Nosy Bob. So I thought I'd sort of make him one of the key characters in this story. So you've got him, you've got um, the young man who falls in love with um, Captain Moonlight, James Desmond. Uh, you've got a really critical time in Australian history when uh, Australia is rapidly changing. You know, we're throwing off our convict origins. We're trying to become a unified nation, even though, say, uh, New South Wales and Victoria are very competitive. There's always a bit of one-upmanship. Sound a little bit familiar, doesn't it? Even in these times, <laughs> it's still going on. Uh, but through telling the story of Captain Moonlight, I was able to describe a, a really critical part of Australian history and hopefully have a little bit of fun along the way. Yeah, it, was, it, it, it does feel like a crossroads book where you just feel that Australia is on the precipice of becoming a real country and the, the bushranger threat sort of hangs over the, the whole country. It's not, this is not just a, a biography of uh, Moonlight in any way. It feels very much like, a, like you've captured a moment in time. Yeah, um, I, wanted, I wanted to try and write it with all of those techniques that you find in a novel, with subplots and extra characters and a bit of history. Um, but I also wanted to tell that period because um, the the bushrangers have been mythologized in our country. I mean, many of them have been held up as heroes. They still are in many respects some, uh, for many people. Uh, people like Kelly loom larger than life. Um, and one of the reasons we haven't heard enough about Captain Moonlight is because uh, Kelly was hanged 
about 10 months after Captain Moonlight. And I think uh, Moonlight was left in Kelly's shadow. And yet Captain Moonlight is a far more complex and interesting character, I think, than even Ned Kelly. You know, he came from a very different background. He, uh, he was born in uh, Northern Ireland and a lot of the bushrangers had um, Irish roots and uh, could trace their history way back to Ireland. But most of them came from what you would have called the peasants of Ireland. And they came to Australia holding a grudge against the English aristocracy and the royal family. Moonlight was none of those things. He was born in 1845. Andrew George Scott was his name. His father was the Justice of, of, of the Peace in uh, a small Northern Ireland town called Rathryland. And um, he oversaw the landed gentry. He sat in judgment uh, in civil tribunals. He also tried to keep the peace between the warring Catholic and, and Protestants at the time. Uh, but then the family lost their fortune and they were forced to emigrate and they ended up in New Zealand in the early 1860s. And by then, Andrew George Scott was uh, 17, 18 years old. He signed up and fought for the uh, Waikato um, uh, Battalion during the Maori Wars, was injured there, um, and then came to Australia in about 1868, just a month or two after uh, Prince Albert, uh, the second son of um, Queen Victoria, there'd been an assassination attempt on his life while he was touring Sydney. And the colony of Australia was aghast. They were deeply embarrassed uh, because they had hoped that this first royal visit to Australia would finally show the world and particularly the mother country back in England and the authorities in London that we'd grown up. We were no longer a nation of, of convicts. You know, we were no longer stained by that convict past. And, uh, you know, Andrew George Scott limps off this boat in May 1868 just a couple of months after the assassination attempt on the, um, on the Queen's son. And uh, there's a real, I guess, a real antagonistic feeling towards anyone of Irish descent in Australia at that time. Uh, the New South Wales Premier at the time, uh, Henry Parks, who became you know, the, one of the founding fathers of Australia, he described the, uh, the Irish in disgraceful derogatory terms. Uh, he couldn't stand them. And in, uh, there was retaliation. They withdrew funding for um, some of the Irish uh, Catholic schools around Australia at the time. So Andrew George Scott arrives in Australia and um, there's, there's something in Andrew George Scott that is also a little different to most of the other bushrangers. A lot of them had you know, the traits of a madman. We saw people like Dan Mad Dog Morgan and, and other ruthless bushrangers like that you know, roaring through the countryside and massacring people and shooting police officers. But Andrew George and Scott family, there was a, a hint of madness running through their blood, people back in their village used to say. And he'd get a certain gleam in his eye and he was super intelligent, he was well-educated, he was being taught the classics. He could recite poetry, some of the great poems of the, uh, the great romantic poets uh, from start to finish. Extraordinary, but there was this mad streak to him. So he ended up going to Victoria. He became a, a lay preacher there and went to the, uh, a couple of small towns, ended up robbing a bank uh, in Mount Edgerton, which is just outside Ballarat, um, got away with it for a while, uh, but was eventually arrested. Uh, and just before his trial, he staged one of the most audacious um, escapes from the Ballarat prison anyone had ever seen in this country. Uh, he took six other prisoners with him. They went over the wall. 
um, and he was on the loose for 10 days. Uh, he'd been trained as a civil engineer, so he knew how to dismantle a lock on a prison door, which you know, they weren't too uh, safe back in those days, and help everyone escape. Um, later on, he uh, was jailed for that, sent to Pentridge for 10 years, um, and endured the depravities of the Pentridge. The Pentridge stockade, as it was known back then, was probably one of the worst prisons, definitely in the Southern Hemisphere, and if not the world. Um, you had uh, people like, uh, prisoners like Michael Gately, who'd been appointed the, the head executioner in Melbourne. He was also a prisoner. Now his parlour trick, if you like, in the prison yard was to get down on all fours and catch rats with his mouth. He'd catch them in his teeth, live ones, and then he'd stick them on a stick and barbecue them for everyone. Basically your old your standard rat kebab, I, I guess. Um, so there were these kind of people, this is a ghoulish kind of uh, gothic place of horrors. And Andrew George Scott, and Captain Moonlight as he's known, ends up in this prison. And it's there in about 1875. He probably crosses path with Ned, uh, paths with Ned Kelly, who's there for a very short time. Um, but he meets a young man called James Nesbitt. Now Nesbitt is uh, about 24, 23 years old. He's a petty thief. His father is a drunk who has beaten him for most of his life. They live in the inner suburb of Carlton. He's run with some of the, the Bouvery Street push, some of the gangs that were around back then. And in Andrew George Scott, he finds a father figure who has traveled the world, who is well-educated. He talks about things like dignity and honor. And there's a spark between them. And to me, this is the most fascinating part of the story that in this repressed Victorian era, two men, fall in love with one another. Yes, they do it in prison, um, and it's probably not uncommon, but in that time, it was very uncommon, and uh, they become soulmates. And the reason we know all of this is that in his death cell, as he was waiting to be executed, Captain Moonlight wrote a series of letters to people around the country. Some of them were thanking people for looking after him while he was in Australia. Others were to James Nesbitt's mother, talking about how much he loved her son. Um, and those letters were never sent. They were seized by the jail authorities and they spent more than 100 years sitting in the archives until about 20 years ago when they were dusted off by some historical researchers. And they uncovered this trove. I mean, Andrew George Scott talks about his great love for James Nesbitt. Um, he wants to be buried with him. He wants to share the same grave where they can be soulmates forever. And even though, I guess, in that period, in that era, it was common for men to write letters to each other that were full of flourishing phrases and um, quite affectionate, these letters go well beyond that. And they prove that these two men were in a, an intense relationship. And when you put that into the context of the repressed um, era of the late 19th century, uh, it's quite an extraordinary, not an extraordinary pairing, but an extraordinary tale. Oh, it really is. What a great summary, I feel like. <laughs> I, I feel like people- I hope I'm not talking to, too much for you, No, John. not at all. I, I, I feel like you just captured the, the core of the story in a way that, I mean, it is just, I think the thing that people should keep in mind though is that you, your writing style, it is like reading 
almost like a, like a noir thriller, but happens to be about bushrangers in Australia and it's historically true. Um, yeah, I, I wrote it in the, um, I decided to write it in the present tense because I thought it would add far more immediacy. And mm. when I wrote Buckley's Chance, I had a, a, my problem with Buckley was that there's only so much information you can get about William Buckley because most of it was just lost and the man himself didn't say that much. And a lot of it was through interpretation and using other sources and how they saw Buckley. With, um, with Andrew George Scott, you can actually sit down and you can spend, and I did this, I spent months sitting on Trove. Now, if no one knows what Trove is, it's a part of the National Library of Australia. It's probably one of the great treasures um, for anyone interested in Australian history. It's free. So you have tens of thousands of Australian newspapers going back to about the year 1800 that have been fully digitized. And there's a search function. So you can just tap it in and you can just read the accounts from the day. And if you go back to 1879, say the middle of November 1879, every newspaper around this country and overseas ones were filled with stories about Captain Moonlight and the siege that he and James Nesbitt and their gang staged at the Wantabadgery Station, which was just outside Gundagai. It was the biggest news. I mean, if, if we think coronavirus is big, it was almost equivalent to that. And it took the nation by storm because Ned Kelly had gone quiet. His gang was still at large in northeastern Victoria, but no one had really come close to them since the Stringybark um, massacre of the three troopers there back in 1878. And everyone thought that the bush rangers were gone. You know, that's, that's great. That era's finished. They're done and dusted. We can now get on with being a modern civilization. And don't forget that this is also an era where, which has been called the Second Industrial Revolution, where the bush rangers thrived with um, the bush telegraph. Now, you know, the old Aussie bush telegraph, which was an old man on a horse riding from one town to another, passing on a whisper or a rumour or a letter. Uh, and that's how messages were sent back then. But suddenly the electric telegraph had arrived incredibly fast. Steam engines had arrived. Uh, over in Germany, a, a guy called Carl Benz with a very droopy moustache was tinkering away in the garage, coming up with a two-stroke engine that was about to see the introduction of the first motor car. Thomas Edison had just invented the very first light bulb that would last longer than just a brief pop. Um, so the world was being lit up. It was becoming incredibly noisy. There were new machines. And there were fewer places for the bushrangers to hide. They were basically being forced out of existence. Um, and so the appearance suddenly of Captain Moonlight and his gang at this station, you know, they walked for a week and a half from Melbourne to Gundagai. That's a long walk. There was a, a recession on. Men were going from farm to farm, walking up and down those dusty roads, looking for work, looking for food. And they'd been rejected several times. And Andrew George Scott was a man who didn't like having his honour and his dignity insulted. Um, so he staged a reprisal at Wantabadgery and he took over the station. And that's where the yeah, there was a siege, they took 40 hostages, um, an incredible series of shootouts between um, Captain Moonlight and his gang. Um, and that eventually led to Moonlight walking onto the gallows on that uh, Monday morning in January 1880 and staring at the nose, noseless face of Nosy Bob. 
Nosy Bob, what a, I mean, what a great discovery he was. I loved that his his point of view bits a, in, the, in the book. They're wonderful. Is 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 one of those um, I guess eccentric characters that only uh, the nineteenth century could have produced. You know, he he later on he he moved to Bondi Beach, a very small cottage there, and he raised pigs in his backyard. He had a horse that he trained that would walk down a Campbell Parade to the local pub. It'd have a pannikin or a little tin can on it. Um, the publican would come out, fill that pannikin with beer, and then the horse would walk back to Nosy Bob's house and deliver his beer to him. Not a drop spilled either. He taught it how to walk properly. Because Nosy Bob couldn't go down to the pub. A, he didn't have a nose, but B, um, there was public disgust for anyone who was an executioner. Um, if he drank a beer in a pub, the publican would smash the glass so that no one would uh, have their lips touch the same glass. People would point at him and ridicule him in the street or grab their children and walk to the other side of the road if they saw him coming. He was very much a leper um, in society. And, you know, he learned to live on his own. I think his greatest feat was he liked to fish, but not like other people. Nosy Bob would get a huge hook, tie it to a piece of rope, put a big chunk of uh, flesh through the hook and then throw it into, um, into the waters of Bondi Beach. And he'd wait for the shark to come along and take it. And then he'd use the horse to pull the shark out of the water. And his house was littered with the um, sun-bleached jaws of all of these sharks that he'd caught over the years. Truly one of the great eccentric characters in, in Australian history. And it also took his work, even though it was so um, considered to be so disgusting to, to um, civilised people, took his work very seriously. And it was important, actually, to execute. If you were going to, if the state decided to execute someone, that it was humane, it was important to do it properly. Yeah, and, and the detail that you dug up about, which I'd never read before, about how they prepare the rope, and that was that was really interesting too, I thought. Yeah, it's, there's a real craft behind it, believe it or not. And um, I guess a lot of uh, executions back in, I mean, unfortunately, we've got a history of hanging people from tree limbs with, you know, shredded ropes for a long, long time, a thousand years or more. But um, it was only in the um, 1800s that a little bit of science came around about it. So they would measure how far the body would have to fall uh, for the rope to be placed properly um, at the back of the neck so that they could get a clean snap uh, in a second death. That's what everyone hoped for. That's what everyone wanted because you didn't want to be left on the end of a noose slowly strangling, which is what happened in so many cases. And Nosy Bob was a craftsman and a practitioner of, uh, of his profession who took it very seriously. So you'd have to soak the hessian, you'd have to stretch it, boil it, make sure it was, um, uh, I, I guess, flexible enough so that it wouldn't give and, and create problems. Because if there was a problem on the gallows, then uh, the press would turn on him. Because don't forget, these were huge public events. It was only until I think about 1878 or something, or 1870, that they banned the public from attending in large numbers executions in Australia. Before then, it was a great morning out for everyone. You'd gather the kids and sort of head into the city and watch the latest villain uh, being sent to his doom. Uh, these are pretty brutal times, Joel. Um, and yeah, and then... There's a real dichotomy between that that sense that people are 
have this blood thrill whilst also uh, disgusted with it. It, it, it. That's where I feel like you've really captured this moment in history that it, it could go either way. And it is sort of personified by, by Bob and by uh, Moonlight and they're sort of fatalistic. I mean, the book starts with um, Scott in prison and, and, and Bob and it intercut with Bob preparing the noose. And it just, it, it felt like the whole book just came together so beautifully with the, you know, the cover with that noose on it. Um, did you always plan to write it that way with that sort of uh, no, direction or did that just come out in the writing? No, I spent, obviously, close to a year researching it and then starting to write. And I had no idea. I was really starting to, um, not panic, but I was starting to get quite anxious because I had so much material. There was just so much there. And it's always the problem with when you're doing historical nonfiction is doing too much research and then you're just snowed under. You're weighed down by all of the data and information that you have. And you've got to push it to one side and go looking for what is the most a, um, interesting and entertaining way to put a reader in and actually tell this tale. And, and because I, I mean, I've spent a little bit of time talking about Nosy Bob and Captain Moonlight, to me, they were the two natural characters to book in uh, this tale. And I thought, well, Funnily enough, they only ever met for a very brief few minutes at the end, but their lives were kind of interwoven and their stories were part of this bigger story that we've been talking about with this changing of Australia, which we mentioned with capital punishment and hanging. By 1879, there'd been a couple of cases in New South Wales and Victoria where the public had begun to turn against the idea of hanging people as a penalty, particularly for anything less than murder. Um, there's been a case in Mudgee, I think it was in June 1879, when a young Aboriginal man was sentenced to death for the alleged rape of a, uh, an older woman there. Now, it was very flimsy evidence. Um, the trial was very quick. A lot of suggestions that it was all um, done very quickly to sort of take the spotlight off the real villain. So this poor um, young Aboriginal stockman was sentenced to death. Nosy Bob had to officiate at that hanging. He had to go to Mudgee. He had to get the train. It took a day and a half to get there. He had to get a Cobb & Co coach down all these winding hilly roads that led into Mudgee. Um, and as he left Sydney to go to that hanging in that, in that month, there were 10,000 people gathered in Sydney streets on one evening um, holding candles uh, and protesting against the death penalty. So this was a pretty significant shift in public opinion. Unfortunately for Captain Moonlight, they didn't feel the need to go out and, um, and protest about his impending execution because A, he'd been found guilty of uh, shooting a, a police trooper dead, which is you know, one of the, the, the worst crimes you can and could commit. Uh, but also there was very little public sympathy for the man and I think some of it, even though it was unsaid, because they would never dare touch on um, such sensitive issues in public, but it was probably had a lot to do with his relationship with James Nesbitt, because there were all these hints throughout all of the newspapers when you read between the lines and in the journals and diaries of people that these two blokes are in an unnatural relationship. Um, you know, it's not like now where we're pretty much you know, there are pockets of resistance, but we're far more accepting of 
um, you know, a gay relationship be what it may. But uh, back in those days, um, there was a lot of public resentment and a lot of people didn't even know that um, there was such a thing as homosexuality. So, you know, I think because of that and because of the nature of uh, the crime that he'd been found guilty of, um, Captain Moonlight didn't find a lot of compassion out there. You know, he was reviled and he was seen as a bit mad. And you know what? I, I think he was a little bit mad. I don't think there's any doubt about that. There's, a, there's, a, there's quite a lot of evidence there that he was at least a narcissist, um, that he was full of insecurities. Um, a lot of it may be bound up in his childhood, like everyone, like all of us. Um, but he, he certainly couldn't help himself. You know, he, he loved getting out in public, but when the scrutiny became too intense, he withdrew and essentially had a nervous breakdown a couple of times when, when the pressure was too much. And, and that's why I say he's an incredibly complex character, far more complex than those bloke, other blokes who were riding around on horses with big hats and long guns and holding up, you know, stagecoaches. And, um, you know, hopefully what I can do with this book is de-romanticise the myths around the Bushrangers a little bit um, because... I grew up on those myths and the romance and I loved it and there's nothing wrong with that. But I think we need to see these rain bush rangers and outlaws as real people rather than being the larger than life characters that they were portrayed at the time because, you know, people just love to read. There's a, there's a thing I write about in the book, a, a guy who writes to a newspaper and he's pleading with the newspaper to stop running stories about Captain Moonlight's trial. Because he said he likes to get up. He has a morning ritual. He gets up every morning. He likes to read the newspaper and then he heads into the city. But unfortunately, his girls, and one of them is called Anastasia, they grab the paper before he can get to it. And the three daughters sit there and read every line on the latest breathless reports about the trial of Captain Moonlight. And you know, everyone was besotted with what was going on. And I guess in a, in a way, it's like the way that we look at Kim Kardashian in a, in a strange way or yeah, the whole celebrity culture. <laughs> exactly. It's, it's celebrity culture back in 1879. Uh, back in, you had a few actresses and actors who, you know, um, were on the stage in some of the theatres around the country, but you didn't have the communication that we have now and the ability to send images and um, uh, particularly, I mean, social media. The Bushrangers would never have survived with Twitter, Instagram and Facebook because everyone would have known where they were in real time and they would have been very easy to, to track down. Uh, instead, they uh, police had to rely on the old Bush Telegraph like everyone else and they'd often arrive days and sometimes weeks later after the event. Yeah, and yet they did have a very strong sense you get the impression of their of how they came across. You know, they were very theatrical, um, and I think you say in the book you can always rely on a bushranger for a theatrical flourish. And I, I think Moonlight was probably among the most theatrical because well, because was, of his background and very interesting case. And because he had this warped sense of honour and dignity, he was outraged over his treatment in prison. He thought these were places that these were reformatories where you'd take a man who had uh, made mistakes and then you would let him out into the real world a changed man because somehow through being in Pentridge for seven years you would uh, he would be transformed 
Um, but he was horrified by what he saw in these prisons. There was no attempt at reforming any of the characters. They were just essentially tortured and locked in small cells and fed appalling food. So when he was released from Pentridge, he thought, I'm going to go on tour and do some public lectures. Now, public lectures were a big thing. You didn't go to the movies back then. You didn't watch Netflix. Someone would put on a public lecture on a Wednesday night at the local town hall and everyone bought a ticket and they actually made money and the audience got to fill in three or four hours on an evening. Um, so Captain Moonlight, beautiful dresser, flamboyant, um, lovely suits, his hair never combed out of place, well perfumed. He would take the stage and give long lectures about the inadequacies of the prison system in Australia. And for a couple, he hired a theatrical agent, Richard Thatcher, who looked after him for a while. Um, but people seemed tired of it because it was really boring and there wasn't a great deal of public love for a bloke who'd been in prison for an audacious bank robbery you know, years earlier. Uh, and he was forced out of that. But he, he, ha he had that way, he knew how to hold an audience in, in the palm of his hand. Um, he unfortunately had uh, a propensity to go into really small detail. So he could actually bore them senseless for a time as well. But he was certainly known for his theatrical flourishes as was say the mentor to Ned Kelly, Harry Power. Old Harry was, was uh, I mean, Russell Crowe, if you saw the true history of the Kelly gang, the recent movie. Um, I don't know if many people were fans of that movie because they were expecting to see Ned Kelly, not a skinhead version, a blonde skinhead version yeah. of it. But, but Russell Crowe was perfectly cast as Harry Power, I thought, and he really caught Harry, this curmudgeonly old man with bow legs and uh, walked with a limp who had intestinal problems. And um, he was a, another one with, he loved the theatre of being a bushranger. You know, he'd hold people up. He wore boots that curled at the end so that everyone would remember him. Uh, he made, you know, big statements and made sure the press were always around. So these guys, they had a sense of being self-promoters, I guess, long before the whole notion and the phrase self-promotion had come into existence. They, they sold themselves a certain way and um, some of the best of them knew how to court public opinion and use it to their advantage. Uh, men like Fred Ward, who was known as Captain Thunderbolt, who roamed around central and northern New South Wales during the 1860s. He was protected a lot because he, he uh, sometimes shared the proceeds of his crimes, but he was also seen as a, a man who stood up to the um, authorities. And then um, his audience in that central New South Wales area were essentially ex-convicts or the children of convicts. And so they sort of identified with him, I guess, and protected him. But by 1879, uh, for Ned Kelly and for Captain Moonlight, I think, public sympathy had was starting to run out. Yeah, definitely. It, it feels you capture that sort of end of the bushranger feel uh, in this book. It feels like, um, you know, the nails in the coffin, despite the fact that it is probably the peak at the same time, there is this sort of, it's, you know, it's the grand, it's almost like a, it's, it's for since about the 1820s when food, the first bushrangers appeared, um, Van Diemen's Land, the first convicts escaped, took to the bush and uh, began committing crimes there right through into about the 1870s when they thought it was just about all over. But there, it was never over until about 1879 and early 1880. And that's when the end of Moonlight and the end of 
Kelly came about and you know, it ended with a bang, not with a whimper. You know, the two biggest names in Australia in that 12 month period, both being executed. Um, yeah. and there were a couple of lingerers after that. They you know, picked up a bush ranger in 1905, but he wasn't a real bush ranger. You know, <laughs> the whole notion of um, men on horseback roaming, you know, the, um, the wilds of Australia was well and truly over by then. Yeah. Um, one thing I noticed that is that this book um, sort of almost picks up in terms of the time period where, where William Buckley ended. Did you intentionally think, yeah, oh, I'd like to explore the next chapter in what happened in Australian history, or was that just coincidence? That was just coincidence, but I've, now I feel like I'm just trapped in the 19th century because I'm, <laughs> I'm just starting work on another book, and that's in the that's right at the end of the 19th century. It's not long after. <laughs> I Captain was wondering Moonlight. if you were going to start the next one after that. I said to the publishers a couple of months ago, I said, please let me out of here. I want to get into the 20th century or much earlier. But it is, I keep being astonished by the 19th century, and, and I've said quite often, particularly with case of William Buckley. Why didn't I know about this? Why wasn't I? And I'm really enthusiastic about it because to me it's all new. I mean, I sat there in high school, you know, throwing bits of paper from the back of the room and sort of watching the clock, hoping it'd tick on to half past three so I could get out and get on the bus and go home. And Australian history was really boring when I was in school. And I haven't been back in a history class for a long time and I'm sure it's a lot more interesting these days. But it I do scratch my head and go, why didn't we teach people this kind of history? Because the one way to capture particularly young people's imagination and my imagination, I'm certainly not young, is through the characters and through the people. And you've never seen an array of eccentric, bizarre 19th century. You know, these were the last real, I'm talking about the colonial days, these are the last days of the swashbucklers basically people who, who went out into the world were unafraid and went to places no one had been before tried things no one had tried before um, they didn't have technology they just relied on their wits and their own courage and to me i mean i wouldn't have wanted to live back then there's no way known give me a, a nice fresh shower every morning and a, a nice glass of wine at night and i'm happy but you know to look back and unearth some of these stories and look at the lives that people led. They were hard, tough lives. Um, they were, they didn't live very long. A man was old. I'm in my, let's say I'm in my mid fifties to be kind. Uh, I would have been a pretty, uh, one of the seniors of society by then. Uh, to get to 70 or 80, you were a very, very long lived person. Uh, and if you still had your teeth, you were an especially lucky person who probably was blessed with great genes. Um, and you go through that time, in, say with Captain Moonlight, kerosene lamps are only just arriving. You know, think about our lives where we get home at, in the evening and you can flick on TV and you've got so many channels, so many options to do. You can look at your iPad, your phone. You're just constantly assaulted with entertainment. Well, back then, they didn't have radio and television and moving pictures, they had none of that. They uh, had an oil lamp and they probably slept a lot better than what we did, but they certainly didn't live as long. Yeah, I bet, I bet. So, so before we finish up, um, can you tell us about the next, the next project? 
Yeah, it's, um, look, it's set in Australia, um, partly in Australia and partly in England. It's got to do with a bloke who was a suspect in the Jack the Ripper killings for a time, who um, uh, was a serial killer and moved to Melbourne um, in the later stage of the 19th century and couldn't help himself. He just had to kill again. And he became, like Moonlight and like Ned Kelly, his, his capture and his trial was certainly the biggest event of the year. It made the front page of the New York Times. It was covered by the English press who were in a frenzy about him. Um, and to me, it's, well, it's going to close out my little journey into the 19th century, I think, because everything changed after that. But he is a fascinating character. And I'm just starting, I'm still doing the research, but I'm coming across bunch of really interesting people. One of the men who defended him in court later became a Prime Minister of Australia and he was a very strong supporter of spiritualism, as many of them were back then. But this bloke believed that he'd had out-of-body experiences, could summon people from another room simply by projecting his thoughts and he could then imprison them by waving his arms around them and sealing them up with invisible chains. He became a Prime Minister of Australia. I think we've had stranger ones than that, though, let me tell you, over the years. So um, I'm having a lot of fun doing the research, but um, in the next few weeks, I'm going to have to sit down and, um, and start getting cracking on the writing of it. And that's the terrifying bit when you're looking at a blank screen and the person's sitting there and you might look up in about an hour later and you've had another coffee and you're still staring at it, thinking, where are the words? And sometimes, sometimes they come, and when they come, they're fantastic, and they'll flow. And then it's like anything to do with writing. Other days, it's really tough going. So I set myself targets normally. I'll try and do, you know, on a, if I know it's going to be a bad day, I'll say, let's do 500 words or 1,000 words. And then sometimes um, you're, uh, you're taken over by the spirits, and the words just tumble out, and you might get 3,000, 4,000 words down on a page. That'll be rough, and you can go back to them on a second draft, but the important thing is to get it all down and to start writing. And you know, I had a few days there where I, I've never known writer's block before, but there were a couple of times during Moonlight when I went, oh, where do I take this story now? What's my next chapter? And you just sit there and you force yourself not write and type. You just go bang, 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 and then suddenly something pops up and you can delete what you've done and then restart. And, mm. you know, it's a, it's a weird way to work, I think. But um, gee, That's I a weird job, it. being a writer. It is a weird job and it happens. <laughs> I mean, I'm an early bird. I like getting up early in the morning and tackling it so that I've got the rest of the day. If, I'm, if I can do five or six hours of really solid writing, then I'm drained by then and I can go off and go fishing or do something else. So, but I, I, I kind of I look forward to it and I really anticipate it, but I also dread it. I've got that little... Yeah, I, I, I totally get that. Yeah, I've got a, pit, a feeling in the pit of my stomach right now and saying, you better get going on this next book. And <laughs> I'm going, oh, I just want to hang around with Captain Moonlight for a little bit longer, you know. Yeah. Well, on behalf of your readers, I can say you are going to have to hurry up because I'm sure once people read this, they want, they're going to want to read the next one. It's, I hope it's, so. I it's, hope so. it's a great, it's a great read. And um, I, I, I'd love to keep talking, but um, we, we do have to finish up. But 
Um, if you would like to buy this book, and I highly recommend you do so, uh, it's Moonlight by Gary Linnell. Um, you can get it from your local bookshop or from booktopia.com.au. And Gary, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us. Real pleasure, Joel. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces and more. Or, if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, for all books featured in this podcast and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia. Australia's local bookstore at booktopia.com.au